Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Sad It's Not Summer Knockrainer. Yeah, today is the last 80 degree day of the year for Washington State, I just read. So, yep, sad is not <laughs> oh, wow. summer. Um, anyways. That said, we weren't expecting the 100 degree day in June, and historically we always get some fancy September day that surprises us, so maybe they'll be wrong. Yeah, less of the super hot ones, more of the okay hot ones. Uh, anyways, you're here for a podcast on security, and so on today's <laughs> episode we're going to be chatting about the latest in exploits against office documents that will likely stick around for quite some time. Uh, new-ish ways to spoof email addresses and make the phishing messages even more believable. And then finally, the latest update to the OWASP top 10 security vulnerability list. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and... Uh, Is it killer wasps to go along with the killer bees? Yes, exactly. You uh, the wasps turn it into a hive mind. No need to listen that to That must be number now. one. <laughs> let's just go into the news. So let's start this week with more Microsoft news. I've actually, do we have anything to talk about from Microsoft land last week? Let me think. I don't think, oh, we did, Chaos DB. So I think we're like five in a row now, maybe, for Microsoft news. But anyways, uh, let's get started with the latest out of them. And this one's actually a bit of a doozy. So last week, Microsoft published an advisory for CVE 2021-4444 which is a remote code execution vulnerability in MSHTML, which is basically their engine that powers the old Internet Explorer browser, but also Microsoft Office. Um, Edge uses a separate engine, um, but if you try and render a page or an HTML file or an ActiveX object in Internet Explorer or Office, it uses this engine. I would say this is more Office flaw than an Internet Explorer, really. It's going to come in documents and you're going to experience it when using office more likely the yeah. way it's being used zero day anyways and they did actually just as a part of the disclosure they stated that they're aware of targeted attacks that attempt to exploit the vulnerabilities with uh, specifically crafted office documents um so they're seeing it out in the wild which is why they put the disclosure out there despite not actually having a patch available um, they said in it that basically they're still investigating uh, and they're not going to rule out a out of cycle update uh, if it comes down to that. But for now, there's actually no patch for this. Um, luckily, though, that doesn't mean that you're like, you have to be concerned about every single document you open up suddenly popping your computer. Like, there are some mitigations that you can uh, have. There's even some that are enabled by default if you haven't messed with them. Like, for example, any Office document you open from the internet, which includes email, uh, will open in protected view, as you probably already know. You get that big yellow ribbon at the top that says enable editing, warns you against doing it, saying it could leave you open to security weaknesses. By default anyways, by the way. So yes. step number one is don't change that default, or if you have, you should turn protected view back on. Yeah, because that does protect you from dynamic content like this from just executing as soon as you open the file. If you didn't have that protected view enabled, like if you for some strange reason went and disabled it as being the default, all it would take would be opening up one of these tainted office documents and boom, remote code execution and take over your computer basically. Um, the advisor also noted a workaround for disabling the installation of ActiveX controls uh, in Internet Explorer, which also mitigates this through Office Documents too. 
Um, if you check out the advisory, again, CVE 2021-40444, it's got instructions in there for how to do that, and it will still allow existing ActiveX controls to continue to run. Um, but like this is going to be like my, in my opinion, at least it's probably going to be a pretty big flaw going forward. Like we saw with the equation editor vulnerabilities in office back in 2017, uh, CVE 2017, 11882 was the big one. Like that thing is still sticking around and it pops up in our quarterly security report almost every quarter as a type of malware or type of exploit that threat actors are still actively using against individuals. And this new one is just going to be yet another one in their repertoire because like, you don't even have to enable macros or launch DDE or anything. It's literally, if you exit out of protected mode and you've got a document that's laced with this, like it's, that's it. As long, assuming you haven't updated once the patch is available. Um, yeah, it's a pretty big one. One click exploit essentially, or one open exploit, which well, it takes a little user interaction opening a document's not uncommon. By the way, if there's a few nerds out there that want to, you know, Microsoft hasn't patched this yet, they, but they are soon. Uh, so I don't know if there's a ton of technical detail officially shared, but there's a, a YouTube channel called Malfind Labs that analyzes this, for instance, and even shares samples of the document and some of the, the back-end server things that are pushed. It's a pretty interesting way. It shows how it works basically by spawning the MSHTML engine, uh, it, Word will actually go out to a website to grab a piece of HTML, which is really JavaScript, and that JavaScript will grab a binary and do some malicious stuff. So if you're interested in a more in-depth analysis of some of this, these documents that I've seen in the wild, check out the Malfind Labs YouTube channel. I guess like the one like silver not necessarily silver lining but other mitigating factor of this is like just as a as a whole i feel like users of microsoft office have still continued migrating to like office 365 basically the subscription model instead of the old you license office version 2012 and that's all you get kind of thing and with subscription models i would have to expect they're more likely to automatically install regular updates or at least be eligible for regular security updates Meaning that like some of the older flaws where people are stuck using Office 2009 or whatever forever tend to stick around, whereas this one, maybe it will have a bit less of an impact since people might be more likely to upgrade. That said, like, crap. I mean, we see all the time out-of-date software that folks are still running, and even if it's enabled by default, a lot of people may not actually install those updates. So this will probably be a big one uh, sticking around for quite some time. And even with Office 365, you still need local clients, right? I mean, I guess you can work purely cloud, but most people still install local clients. So those would have to be updated. So I guess if you're an administrator, yeah. make sure you're training your users not to click that enable editing button for unsolicited documents that they get out of email or the internet. I would say even more specifically, you should avoid, uh, we've said it before, documents are tricky because you know, non-savvy users may think they're benign. They're not. You've heard that from us many times before. And really, you shouldn't click unsolicited documents at all uh, until you've done a little validation. You know, they're, I, I guess in business, people sometimes send you stuff you don't expect. So if it is really something you think might be legitimate, at least verify that it came from that person. 
And sometimes, I mean, and uh, there's lots of protections for phishing that should make it harder to use someone else's domain. But I guess our next story will cover a little trick around that, too. But uh, this, this includes being careful from unsolicited documents that come from people that you quote unquote know based on the, the sender address. Just know that documents can be dangerous. Yeah. So only pay attention to ones you're expecting or ask about them before playing with them. You're not going to get like a executable malware payload attached to an email these days. You're going to get a office document that has something like this exploit or macros in it, or you're going to get a PDF, a PDF <laughs> or a script file or something that uh, looks like a PDF potentially, but it's enough to start the attack. So they're getting better at hiding these things, and it just means you have to basically treat everything with skepticism. And yep. do phishing awareness training, please. Um, so... <laughs> Speaking of what Corey just kind of hinted at there, like when it comes to getting these emails with office documents, it turns out like attackers might have potentially more options for tricking you into thinking it's coming from a legitimate person that you know. Um, so in prep for this uh, story, let's kind of go back to the earlier days of the internet. So late 90s, early 2000s, where domain names could only use Latin letters, A to Z, digits, and a few characters. I could only register watchguard.com or .org or whatever. Uh, couldn't use any fancy non-Latin characters like things with umlauts or uh, Chinese characters or any other extended Unicode characters, for Russian example. Russian uh, Cyrillic characters, yep. right? And it wasn't until the early 2000s when the internationalized domain names or IDNs uh, became usable on the internet. And then 2009, when the Internet Corporation of Assigned Names and Numbers, ICANN, as they're more commonly called, uh, approved these IDNs for top-level domains. And that kind of paved the way for a lot of individuals and organizations in non-English-speaking countries then to register domain names with their own native alphabets. Like, if I'm a, a Chinese user in China, like, I don't necessarily need all my domains to be in English, and I might want to visit, um, like, I don't know, whatever resources I have there using my own native alphabet, for example. Um, unfortunately, though, this actually caused some security issues as those acceptable alphabets got expanded. Uh, for example, like up until mid 2017, cyber criminals could use alternative non-English Unicode characters in domain names to trick victims into thinking they were visiting legitimate websites. So there was a web developer back then um, who registered what looked like apple.com. But the A in it was using the Cyrillic A instead of the ASCII A, where they are quite literally identical in most font types, especially the ones used in your address bar. So if you look at it, it looks like the legitimate Apple.com. Yeah, looks like an A. Even though that... I think the only re re reason it's Cyrillic is probably pronunciation of it is different, but the, I, I can't tell a difference. Yeah, it looks literally identical to the user, even though they are technically different Unicode values for Unicode encoding. Um, it's called a, a homograph attack, uh, that it, and it abuses these IDNs. And luckily, like his research there kind of pointed out the issue uh, once and for all, where browsers, starting with Chrome and then quickly Firefox, um, started moving to different ways to display these domains uh, for depending on which language you choose as your native one. Um, so like in response to this, uh, most web browsers these days actually display IDNs using something called, I think it's punny code, puny code, um, which is an encoding algorithm that uses the ASCII alphabet to encode non-ASCII characters uh, when they're displayed in your browser bar. Like for example, 
using it. Uh, um, that researcher's apple.com website, if you were to browse to it right now, instead of it looking like apple.com, it would be xn-ple-43d.com, where basically they use this to signify to the browser that, you know, actually it's using this uh, Unicode character, um, and then it encodes where in the text, where in the domain that character exists, and it's then able to display all that just in ASCII characters instead. Uh, that's, that was a really crap overview of it, but if you go to like the Wikipedia for PuniCode, they give a pretty good overview of exactly how the encoding works. Um, so this change actually has helped prevent these homograph attacks in web browsers. Like you can't just go to CyrillicApple.com anymore and have it look like Apple.com because you get that funky looking uh, domain name in the browser instead. Uh, but last week, researchers discovered that IDNs can make existing phishing vulnerabilities in Outlook uh, even worse. So I say existing in that when you open up an email in Outlook, uh, you probably notice that it'll check through your contacts. And if you have a contact card for uh, whoever sent that email, it'll display like their logo or their profile picture or their initials if they don't have one. And if you hover over the email, you can see their full contact card. Like at WatchGuard, we're able to see like information about departments and uh, our organization chart for users, their phone numbers, things like that. Um, so Outlook actually determines which contact card to pull up based off of the, the what's called the MIME uh, from header in an email message. So I guess real quick, uh, email 101, uh, there's a whole bunch of different fields and headers that get passed in an email message. There's this thing called the message envelope, which is basically how these servers communicate with each other, saying where is this coming from, who it's going to, things like that. And then inside the envelope is the actual message itself where these MIME headers exist, things like the from field, uh, which typically says what email address it's from, or the mail from field, which is technically different and potentially displayed elsewhere. There's like the return to, which means your, uh, your mail client may show one domain, but if you reply back, it goes to a different email address. Like there's a bunch of different ways that your client then uses to decide which address to show where basically. I to, By the way, it's been a while since I've done the Telenet 25 trick, but to be more specific, I believe the from, I, I think I have this right and not flipped, but the from field is actually, is the, is what your email client will use to display where the email is from. And it's the easy thing to spoof because you can say anything there, uh, not counting DMARC protections, and it may not really connect to where the mail is really from. Whereas I believe the mail from header has to be the actual, you know, where the email server says the email address from address really is. So what I'm getting at is the from header doesn't have to match at all. I think you're kind of alluding to that, the mail from header itself. The from header is just kind of what do you display in the client and the mail from header does typically it's supposed to at least match the email address that this really came from on the sending server that's exactly it like basically to give you an example like if you get an alert or a notification from watchguard cloud for example like that mail from will say from watchguard cloud and maybe it'll be like no reply at watchguard.com or something whereas the actual mail from header then that's kind of hidden behind the scenes is probably something from like our aws mail service or something like that 
And if I were abusing this, you know, what I used to do before DMARC was the thing to just show an example is I would send a, say, a, a mail from that would be Corey added to hackeraddress.com, the actual email address that might exist, but I would just spoof from to be Bill Gates at Microsoft.com. And even though the actual sending email that's being told to the server might actually represent a real email address somewhere, the, the, what it shows you in the client can be something totally different. Yeah, basically by default, you as the mail sender have full control over all of these headers and it's up to the recipient server then to validate them. And there are, like you mentioned DMARC, there's like DKIM, domain keys, identified mail. Like there's different ways to cryptographically sign and authenticate these headers as they're passed in a message, but their adoption is still pretty dang low, all things considered. Um, so and the issue with the adoption is you can be doing it, but other people may not. So like... WatchGuard, if we, I mean, one, we can make our server do it, and that protects us from getting emails that are saying they're from somewhere else when they really aren't. But to protect ourselves, we need to actually, you know, fix our DNS records and follow certain standards, which we do, by the way. But then it still requires for people not to be fished with WatchGuard.com. The recipients have to be doing the settings on their email server too. So for instance, we can participate and uh, our participation means you could set up your email server and make sure it's really from watchguard.com. But if you don't set up your email server that way, the fact that we're doing it doesn't help you because you're not doing your end. Meanwhile, the same is true the other way. Like uh, we can ask to try to verify email, but if people haven't set that up on their servers, well, maybe that verification doesn't happen. So it's the kind. It's kind of like we we complain a lot about spoofing, and I forget what the ISDN was, but or the you know there's that one thing we keep on mentioning where if all ISPs kind of block spoofing as an industry, you could kind of solve the problem. But just one, just some bulletproof hosters deciding to allow a bad mecca ruins it. It's this is the kind of thing until it's really widely adopted. It's it's only partially effective. BCP 38 is the anti-spoofing thing. There for we the, go. Uh, BCP. Maybe we'll chat about <laughs> that you. again in some future episode. But basically what Core is getting at is like Outlook doesn't validate that from header. So I could send a message and if, as long as it's not looking for a cryptographic signature on there, uh, I could say that this message is coming from Corey Nockreiner at watchguard.com, even though it's really coming from my random mail server from somewhere in Russia or whatever. Or even no mail server. You're manually telling right. it directly into the recipient server. <laughs> yep. Um, so, Although that should be hard. And we've seen examples of this even internally where like we'll see messages that say they're coming from Prakash Panjwani, our CEO. But in reality, the mail from email address then is like some random Gmail address. And so in Outlook, it'll look like it's coming from Prakash. Um, but if you check the email address, it's actually a Gmail one. Um, so researchers found that they could register an IDN, so one of these internationalized domain names that was a homograph of the legitimate company. So we could say WatchGuard with a Cyrillic A, and then send a message from that address and then spoof the mime from header to be the legitimate person's email. So basically the from header would be Corey Knockreiner at WatchGuard. The mail from header would be Corey Knockreiner at funnywatchguard.com. Uh, the mail client would show the technically the funny watch guard one, but it looks like the legitimate one because of that homograph attack. And most importantly, um, Outlook would check that from header 
see the legitimate Corey one and then pull up his contact card. So as the recipient now, you get this message that's been spoofed. It looks like it's legitimate because the homograph attack and Outlook adds that extra layer of credibility by pulling up the legitimate contact card. So without like you going in and copy pasting that domain name into like a Unicode decoder and seeing the A is funky, you would have no way of differentiating this from a spoofed message and a legitimate one from Corey, assuming you weren't deploying all of those other tools like DKIM, DMARC, anything that could potentially validate these headers. Um, so like this is honestly, it's, I said it was what, 2017 when web browsers made the change to protect against these homograph attacks. It's now four years later and we're realizing that, hey, mail clients are experiencing the same issues too. I would say even worse because phishing is probably much bigger than web-based threats in general. So this really helps fishers is what we're getting at. The good news is, so the researcher was originally told by Microsoft they're not going to fix it. Uh, But as of this recording, it looks like Microsoft did quietly patch this in Outlook version, oh boy, 16.0.14228.20216, which, man, that's a gnarly build number. But uh, the good news is it does appear fixed. Um, You can't do these homograph attacks and pull up the the, uh, spoofed contact card anymore. But up until now, like it just added another layer of credibility to these spoofing attacks that or phishing attacks that could cause someone to open up, say, a exploitable office document. Yep. By the way, it wasn't exploitable in Outlook Web Access, maybe because it was web-based and fixed in browsers. By the way, one tip that uh, we as security professionals maintaining the security of our company have, uh, have, have uh, had two-way conversations with you might notice a lot of companies adopting something on their email server where they start putting tags on emails that come from external senders just to help remind you people that this email is not from someone in your company uh very common practice it's something that could help with this right because if you got a cory knockreiner at watchguard.com with the Cyrillic A, despite the fact that it may look like me, you know, visually in your email client, this type of feature would know that, or should know that watchguard.com with Cyrillic A is different than me, uh, and would tag this as external senders. So something you might do with your organization. Do you know some employees don't love those tags? They might uh, affect the way mobile emails, you know, you may not be able to quickly see the preview of the first line of the email because the preview will always be this tag. But I do think it's a pretty good feature to add that external sender warning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And again, just this, I'm willing to bet this isn't the only way to enable spoofing messages. So make sure that you're still treating everything with skepticism, even if it looks like it's coming from your boss man, Corey Knockreiner. Yeah, and and try to get to, try to be one of the people that use DMARC, which the the SPFD kit, Kim that we were talking about that combination to one protect yourself from phishing and to to help the industry as a whole. Yep. And if you want some help on that, I believe we did a podcast on that yep. quite some time ago. I'll be sure to link that in the notes for this episode as well. Uh, so moving on now, uh, we if you're a regular of this podcast, you probably regularly hear us mention the Open Web Application Security Project, or OWASP, uh, top 10. 
uh, which is what we think is a great resource for web app developers to identify basically where oh, they should. Wasp is usually something I'm screaming in the yard yeah. when I do yard work to <laughs> warn my wife. Yeah. Oh, Wasp! I'm kidding. We love exactly. Wasp. Exactly. Uh, but it, aside from warning your loved ones that there's someone going to sting you out there, um, it's actually it's a pretty great tool for just awareness about some of the top web application security threats that developers and users need to be wary of. Um, and it gives a lot of great resources for web app development on how to protect against these threats, how to test for them, uh, all sorts of things. And just this last week, OWASP released their updated top 10 for the year 2021, uh, which included three brand new categories and then four renaming and kind of scoping changes for some of the existing categories. And it would take us forever to go through in detail every single change, but I figure like at a high level, we can kind of hit on the new top 10, maybe give our two cents on uh, whether we agree or how we feel about their placement and some of the new additions as well. Does that sound good, Corey? Works for me. Sweet. So let's start with the number one for this year's OWASP top 10, and that is broken access control, which was previously in the number five position on the last revision, which was 2017. Now it's moved up to the top and it covers everything from cross-site request forgery to elevation of privilege, basically anything abusing access control in a web app. And I don't know about you, I feel like this is probably fair to be number one these days. Like it seems like most attacks are going after credential or authentication-based attacks. Yeah, cross-site request forgery is a big one. You've probably heard our, our episodes on cracking MFA or getting past bypassing MFA. Uh, often you're not actually bypassing the MFA. It's more additional authentication mechanisms, things like cookies and uh, allow <laughs> potentially other people, if they get uh, access to the session information, to maybe do cross-site request forgeries using that. So yes, I, I, you're right. Authentication seems to be the most common and easiest way to get in. And with web authentication, there's not just the actual authentication itself, but the mechanisms we use to keep sessions active without making you re-authenticate over and over again. And I think a lot of the broken access control is, how do you do that safely? How do you store an authentication session both on the, the browser client and, and the server without uh, letting other people somehow steal and reuse it. And I'll say broken access control is one of my favorite targets to go after when hacking like IoT web apps, for example, things that allow me to potentially modify other accounts using my account um, just by them not checking, like you said, a validated session and me being able to spoof and say, actually, no, I'm this user. Let me change my email address and reset my password. Uh, those are some of the like the gimmies going after a lot of web apps that don't spend a lot of focus on um, security when it comes time for development. Um, so let's move on to number two now for time's sake, and that is cryptographic failures, which was previously on the list at number three, but under a different name of sensitive data exposure, which they felt was basically it's a broad symptom rather than the root cause. So this renewed focus, they said, is on failures in cryptography that lead to sensitive data exposure or system compromise. And I obviously feel like this is important. Two feels a bit high once we you see some of the other ones we talk about, but I guess like the bulk of the internet these days is encrypted and encryption failures lead to privacy and security issues. So it makes sense to be on there at least. 
I'm curious. I haven't read in detail what the, how they changed the what developers should do to because broken access control. I can see web developers adding custom code and things that might affect that. Cryptography failures, like when I get into anything that's starting to hash or use cryptography, I don't write my own web code. I would I would use frameworks, existing frameworks. So I'm, I'm wondering how many of those failures are in existing frameworks rather than the code a the particular webmaster is writing for his own site versus using frameworks and code that already exists. Yep. And a lot of it is basically how data is stored within the web app. So like at rest data, are uh, you using encryption in the right spot? Are you- yeah. So bcrypt or MD5 or nothing at all, are you salting your hashes if you store passwords in a, as hashes? Okay, I see. Yep. Are you being sure to so there, set- So that, that like, is something the DB admin and the webmaster would have control over. Exactly, and things like, you know, generating your own crypto cryptography material instead of using default keys. So like, it does make sense that, like you said, like I'm not gonna write my own code for this. It's massively complex and man, I failed math three times in college. So it makes sense to use other frameworks. And it's also, it is complicated. And if you don't do it right, it is really easy to break. So I can see why it shows up on this list. And I guess that's a good enough justification for it to be pretty close to the top, especially with all these data breaches that keep happening largely because a lot of this data isn't encrypted at rest. Um, so number three on the list is injection, which was previously number one, uh, but now it also includes cross-site scripting, which previously had its own category at num number seven. By the way, that makes sense to me. I, it should have been part of it. Like I, when I hear just injection, I think mostly SQL injection, but the whole, the whole point of cross-site scripting is to inject script that the server runs. So. I 100% agree that cross-site scripting probably should be part of injection. Yeah, I agree with you there too. And yeah, it is mostly SQL injection or like other database injections. Like SQL isn't the only database format, so no SQL is under there as well. Uh, operating system command injection. Like there's a whole bunch of different types of threats that are categorized under this. And when it comes to how easy they can be to exploit or at least the, the actual impact from a successful ex exploit, that's why this one got rated so highly in the OWASP top 10. Um, so number four then is insecure design, which is a brand new category for this year that covers risks related to design flaws. Uh, covers things like error messages containing sensitive information and insufficiently protected credentials. And honestly, I think this is a great one. Like it's a thing that we tend to see causes a lot of these other security issues is just a lack of design considerations when it comes to security during the development process. What are your thoughts on it, Corey? I, I definitely, th I, I think all secure coding issues are technically insecure design. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree with it. I think I need to dig into this one deeper though, because I think that the, my only complaint about it is that that's very wide. Insecure design can be all kinds of things. So I'd like to see how OWASP subdivides that if they do. So the, some of their recommendations they have, like things like establishing a secure development life, life, life cycle uh, with like application security professionals, uh, create a library of secure design patterns and components they can reuse, uh, using threat modeling for critical authentication and access control and business logic flows. Basically like don't just put it together and assume it works, but build throughout the process testing to actively test against some of these other attacks against your application. 
Really, it means that security should be a consideration from day one. To, to put it simply, a lot of a web application is a program, right? I, I mean, it's, it's a web-based thing, but it's still a program that does something. When you're trying to program and make something, you think mostly about solving that problem of whatever the application is supposed to do. And, you know, classically, you just get that to work. And, and then you may realize, oh, wait a second, users can input data here that could cause issues or this could happen. Or, and secure design is just about, hey, as you're making the thing do what it does, you should think about security right from the start. Yep, it makes sense, and it makes sense to include that. that that's what secure development lifecycle is versus just uh, making the software the YOLO do what development it's cycle. To do. Yeah, I, I I think that's probably the development cycle we adopted for the first fifty years of computing. <laughs> YOLO, whatever it works. Um, <laughs> so moving on now to number five, which is security misconfigurations, which moves up from number six from the previous one. And it now also includes XML external entities, which was previously its own category at number four. And I think that's another fair inclusion. It's basically uh, configuration or misconfigurations and how it can parse, how it uses other libraries, uh, not sending the right headers or directives or things that aren't basically set up correctly in the application can lead to these issues. And parsing external XML uh, entities is one of those particular issues. Makes sense to rope that in there. I feel like this one's a bit of a gimme, I guess. How is security misconfiguration different from insecure design? That's, I mean, ideally, if you were securely designing your application, you would not have misconfigurations. So, oh, yeah. Un unless they were accidental. But, yeah, interesting. Maybe this By is the more way, the on the one thing side is versus the de dev side. I, I, I wish I had done pre-work to go back to look at the original ones but even in the way they're naming these now it sounds like they're kind of being more high level to get more managers and not non-web app people to figure it out because things like xxe cross-site scripting sql injection none of that is in titles anymore and now all of the descriptions of the 10 things are more well, i guess that's wrong when we finally get down to a10 there we still have a a very specific technical issue. Oh, well, you're right that like the whole project's yeah. design is for awareness. And the best way yeah. to do awareness is to have it easily understood by folks at a high level yeah. and then provide the details for those that actually need yeah. it, like the actual developers. Yeah. And I, since we spoke the language, we knew what cross-site scripting, SQL injection, blah, 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 were. It didn't matter for us. But it does seem like they've simplified some of these the names of the top 10, even though they still have the same core technical vulnerabilities, although they might be fit in different categories now. Yep. So moving on to number six, vulnerable and outdated components. And this was previously called using components with known vulnerabilities in position number nine. And really it boils down to not knowing the versions of all the components you use and nested uh, dependencies. By the way, th th this is patching. This yes. is the web version of patching. I mean, honestly, when you make a website, you use components like SSL, but you also use things like web frameworks, pre-made frameworks that have a lot of code to do things. So you don't have to rewrite all the coding wheel to do everything that every e-commerce site in the world does. And when you have a framework, you have a piece of software you have to patch. <laughs> If you're using the WordPress framework, you have to patch that. If you're using, you know what I mean? So so to me, this is just the web version of patch. 
Yeah, that's basically it. And they say that you're likely it's likely an issue for you if you don't regularly scan for vulnerabilities, subscribe to bulletins, and if you don't patch your dang libraries. So, yep, that's pretty fair. Maybe they should just rename this one Patch Your Stuff. It's good to point out because I... I mean, to me, it should be intuitive and obvious, but I guess uh, if you're non-technical, you might not think that patching a web server isn't just about patching Apache or IIS. It's about the development frameworks. It's about every open source package that ties to... Yeah, so I, I, I do get it why you might have to explicitly state that, hey, a web application has a lot of different pieces. And I get it too. Uh, like typically when you make a web app and it works, it's works and you don't want to touch it. Yeah. And that can lead you to it's ignoring like a, it. It's almost like a router, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Throw it in a closet and keep it up while it's working and don't think about it. But just like a router, <laughs> you should be patching them just as regularly. Same with all your web components. And this is speaking as someone who maintains our Capture the Flag web app, for example. And man, when it came time for updating it for this year's Capture the Flag contest, the amount of out-of-date libraries and that thing was I was really disappointed in myself and made more of an effort to regularly go check into that as well and we've maintained Drupal-based WordPress blogs and even when they have tools that really help you keep up to date not just with the the main framework itself but any plugins you use it's it's a it's a endless job yes it is and that's why I delegate it to someone else Um, (laughs) (laughs) so moving on to number seven now identification and authentication failures, which was previously called broken authentication, which came in at position number two. Um, So they actually noted as a part of this that the increased availability of standardized frameworks appears to be helping this category, but it is still a integral part of the top 10. So that's why I kind of moved down and that there are like, there's things like um, OAuth, there's frameworks through authentication providers like Auth0 that make it really easy to do authentication these days. Like, we don't do uh, Mark's famous spaghetti code authentication for our Capture the Flag content, uh, website anymore. We use a framework that helps make it more secure and hopefully not full of issues. Um, and that can help protect against a lot of these threats. And they're basically, that's becoming pretty common in web apps, but it is still an important thing to consider when developing an application. I think it's interesting the difference between access and broken access control, which is related to authentication and broken authentication, and it kind of goes with the story. The authentication and the MFA itself doesn't have to be broken, but if there's, you know, uh, authentication includes the mechanisms used to turn that act into opening access control based on you validated this. So, the mechanisms you use to keep that session open and keep checking if that authentication is valid can be broken even if the authentication itself pretty reliably works without being broken yep and they basically said it's including things like permitting automated attacks like credential stuffing or brute force attempts as well as default weak or well-known passwords so it's all strictly around authentication in this case and protecting that authentication workflow right up until you get that session which then it becomes a access control issue if there's an issue that does make sense, by the way, that the reason it does exist is things like brute forcing. I mean, there's there's common and 100% trivial ways to avoid those type of things, like login throttling. But it is amazing how many web apps, you know, sometimes we would have to raise our hands, <laughs> have, have 
don't have those simple throttling mechanisms. Hey, request throttling is one of the very first things I put on our Capture the Flag website because I knew it was going to be poked at by hackers. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> by the way, I don't mean us directly, but just realize web applications aren't just sites. They're every freaking yes. where. Every device you have has a web application on it, probably. And that thing can be brute force, too. So think of all the, the web-based administrative portals. Do they have throttling? Exactly. Uh, so number eight is software and data integrity failures. So this is a new category that includes the old insecure deserialization category uh, that was previously at number eight. And really, this covers assumptions relating to software updates, critical data, and development pipelines without verifying integrity. So some professions include ensuring unsigned and unencrypted serialized data isn't sent to an untrusted client without some form of integrity check. Uh, verifying that all software and data from expected sources uh, uses signing, for example. Basically, like don't trust untrusted data. If a untrusted client has access to it, don't assume it came back with uh, valid parameters unless you're doing some form of integrity checking. Everything down to making sure that as you're pulling libraries from NPM that it's actually grabbing trusted repositories and you're not falling victim to one of the common attacks we see against package managers like that. I think this one's kind of fair too. Just validate so essentially data. use checksums when you're downloading files to, and uh, and passing data. Check check your data and Burp Suite exists and people can actually change and put whatever they want in a header. So make sure you're checking the response. Yep. For validity. That's a pretty fair summary. Uh, so moving on to number nine now. That's security logging and monitoring failures, which was previously called insufficient logging and monitoring, and that was at position 10. Uh, but it's now expanded to include more failures. And they actually, they noted in this one that they recognize it's actually difficult to test for failures in this category, but failures can directly impact visibility and incident alerting and forensics for these apps. Basically, make sure that not only do you make your app secure, but you've got correct logging and monitoring to identify when issues might actually happen on it or if it's under attack or to investigate after the fact if you did have an incident. Feels like another obvious gimme in that one. Yeah, I, I would say, by the way, <laughs> even if you have perfect logging and uh, security logging and, and failures and alerts, make sure you're monitoring. <laughs> I mean, you can have a lot of logs being put somewhere, but if you're not doing something with them, if you're not looking at them, or you at least don't have processes and tools that will alert you when something important comes up, it's all a waste. So this is a category that's especially interesting to me because I think a lot of people might sometimes even have the stuff that they can go back to and look at, but they don't actually monitor it, which is a good way to find out things early and maybe protect yourself before it gets too late. And then the last one, category number 10, is server-side request forgery, which is new. This is the one that still has a technical. <laughs> this is more the exact specific type of flaw. <laughs> and it's actually a new addition to the list as well. And they said that basically it has a low incident rate, um, but it has an above-average testing coverage and above-average ratings. So as a, to back up on this, as a part of this OWASP revamp, they put out a survey to a bunch of professionals to ask for open comment on what we thought that they should add to this list. And they said that industry professionals are telling them that this is important, 
even though it isn't really illustrated. In it's the data it's essentially time. something we don't see a lot in the real world, but if it happens, it's actually a big impact. Yeah. It's, it's a big problem. I mean, right? just look at that exchange proxy logon flaw. That's server-side request forgery in this case. Yep. <laughs> so it totally yeah. makes sense to include it because like, while we may be, as an industry, getting better at snuffing out cross-site scripting and SQL injection, like our web apps are only becoming more and more complicated with these front end and back end servers that have to communicate with each other. And that enables this really growing category of threat with server side request forgery. So I think it's a good inclusion. I'm glad it's on there uh, to hopefully get some more attention drawn to it when it comes time to developing Exchange Server 2022. Yeah, but in either case, I appreciate their work. I don't. I don't argue the position of any of these things because of how they do it with surveys and all the, the work they put into it. So really think OWASP's an awesome place. And if you have any web applications or developers, you should always make sure they're well familiar with it. Yep. And it is admittedly pretty high level there still, but it is great for awareness on these security topics and still really good tips on how to test and prevent these style of uh, or categories of threats. So definitely check it out if you're a developer, no developer, or have a development team, or if you're just curious about how these top 10 threats actually work. Beyond their top 10, they go into lots of detail on in, in different places and even provide tools where you can test your own security and learn how these attacks work. Yep. So overall, I think the updates are pretty fair. I think they're applicable to our modern uh, security threats we're seeing for web apps. And... Uh, I mean, hopefully they remain applicable for, well, no, hopefully they don't remain applicable. Hopefully we solve every single one of these and hopefully, we never have yeah. another issue. <laughs> yeah, web apps will be perfectly secure. I'm sure forever. that day will come. Yeah, absolutely. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter, I'm at X-O-R-R-O underscore, Corey is at Secadept, and the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.